Dr. Carson, thank you for spending a few minutes with us here on The Bridge. We appreciate your time. My pleasure. I appreciate what The Bridge does. I really I would like to start by hearing your testimony, your Christian testimony of how you came to faith. Well, it's a pretty long testimony, but I'll see if I can shorten it. I'm a, I'm a surgeon, so I know how to cut. <laughs> um, you know, early on, uh, obviously, I think I had a pretty idyllic life. Uh, we lived in a one of those little 700-square-foot GI homes, uh, but it was our 700-square-foot mm-hmm. home with a little yard, and it was really, I thought, was uh, paradise. And then my parents got divorced when I was eight. My mother had only a, less than a third-grade education, and we had no place to live. And uh, fortunately, one of her older sisters who lived in Boston took us in, tenement, uh, multi-family dwelling, rats, roaches, saying gangs, sirens. Both of my older cousins who lived with her were killed. I mean, it, it, that was the kind of environment that it was. Um, and, you know, my mother worked very hard. But I remember as a nine-year-old sitting on the ghetto stairs in Boston and uh, looking through the building across the street a sunbeam was shining through because all the windows had been broken out. And it made me think about my future. And I specifically remember thinking that I would probably never live to be more than 20 mm. or 25 years old at the most because that's what I saw around me. Um, but obviously, I recently celebrated my 70th birthday, so everything beyond 25 is icing on the mm. cake for me. It's wonderful. But uh, we were able to move back to Detroit after a couple of years, still in a multifamily dwelling, still with plenty of wildlife, but at least she was uh, independent. And I was a horrendous student, perhaps the worst you've ever seen. Everybody thought I was stupid except for my mother, who was always encouraging me and, and never accepted excuses for herself or from us always quoted this poem called Yourself to Blame if you came up with an excuse. You could expect that from her. Um, But she made us start reading books because she worked as a domestic two and three jobs at a time. And the beautiful homes that she cleaned, she noticed there were a lot of books there. And they didn't spend a lot of time watching TV, so she restricted our TV time, made us read books. All of her friends were criticizing her and saying, you can't make boys stay in the house and read books. They'll grow up and they'll hate you. And I would overhear them and i say, you know, they're right, Mother. But uh, <laughs> we had to do it. But I think she had the last laugh because, uh, you know, one son became a brain surgeon and one became a rocket scientist. So, no kidding. you know, she, I think, had the right no, idea no, there. Man. But... Um, You know, my transition really came with that reading as I started reading about people of great success. And um, I came to the understanding that the person who has the most to do with what happens to you is you and not somebody else. And even back in those days, there were the naysayers and the society is stacked against you and there's all this racism and stuff. I stopped listening to that and I said, I think I'm just going to concentrate on what I want to do. And keep my eyes on that prize and what do I have to do to accomplish it and stop listening to all this peripheral garbage. And, uh, you know, my brother felt the same way. Mm-hmm. And uh, certainly my, my mother encouraged that. And, you know, I went from the worst student to the best student in, in, in no time at all. 
but uh, the big issue that I still had was my temper. Uh, I would just get so angry that I just didn't care at that point. I just wanted to hurt people. And, you know, fellow hit me with a pebble once that didn't hurt, but I was incensed that he would dare throw a rock at me, and I picked up a large rock, hurled it at his face, broke his glasses, almost put his eye out. Uh, but it really culminated one day when I tried to stab another youngster who angered me, and fortunately he had a large metal belt buckle on the knife blade, broke as it struck it, and he fled in terror, but I was more terrified, recognizing that I was trying to kill somebody. I had turned things around academically, and uh, you know things were looking promising. Maybe I would realize my goal of becoming a physician, but I said, with this temper, I'll never do it. I'll end up in jail, reform school, or the grave. And I just uh, locked myself in the bathroom and I prayed and I said, Lord, I can't control my temper. And e either you'll have to control it or I will fail in life. And uh, as I was thinking and praying and reading, there were all these verses in Proverbs about anger. And also all these verses about fools, and it all seemed like they were written about me. And I came to an understanding during that time that the reason I was always angry is because I was selfish. Mm. And it was always about me, me, myself, and I. And I said, if you learn how to step outside of the circle, let it be about somebody else, you won't be angry. That was the last day that I had an angry outburst. Mm. Um, and it, it really transformed my life. And I, th I think that's when I really found Christ. Mm. And uh, I wasn't perfect at that time by any stretch of the imagination, but a, a major path correction that was going on at that point. And, uh, you know, I, I went on to uh, Yale University uh, thinking that I was perhaps the smartest person in the world, but certainly one of the top five. Uh, <laughs> it didn't take me long to be disabused of that. <laughs> um, but, you know, I got on track, uh, went to medical school at Michigan. Uh, after being told by my advisor there that I should drop out of medical school because I wasn't cut out to be a doctor, but, uh, you know, I prayed, I asked the Lord, what do I need to do? And, and, and the Lord showed me that I wasn't really getting anything out of those lectures. There were six to eight hours worth of boring lectures every day. And that I should spend that time reading. And I did, and the rest of medical school was a snap after that. Mm. And then I went on to Johns Hopkins and uh, became chief of pediatric neurosurgery at a very young age, at 33. And uh, I must admit that I thought I was pretty hot stuff. And uh, there was a case early on of a little boy who was diagnosed with a malignant brainstem tumor. And, you know, I was able, through a couple of operations, uh, to take care of him. Today, he's a minister. He was four years old at that time. Um, but after that case, I realized that it wasn't me at all, that it was God.
And I said, Lord, you be the neurosurgeon and I'll be the hands. And, and that's where the whole concept of gifted hands came from. It was a gift from God. And all kinds of amazing things began to happen after that, just earth-shattering, once-in-a-lifetime cases. The, the, uh, the, the job or the career of a surgeon it doesn't usually propel one to be worldwide famous. No. Have you, um, since you, you dealt with the anger and, and realized it was a little bit about self-centeredness, mm -hmm. have you struggled with that fame that has resulted in your success? Uh, not, not in the slightest, because I have totally always recognized that it's not me, because I probably know me better than anybody else, <laughs> and I know I can't do this stuff. Right? <laughs> and he just continues to direct. He always puts the right people in my pathway when I need it. Mm -hmm. And things just happen. There's so many things that have happened. I remember once uh, we were trying to sell our house and uh, couldn't sell it. Uh, people across the street put theirs up for sale. Somebody came to see ours and bought theirs. I mean, it was just, we couldn't. And I said, Lord, I pay my tithe. I'm faithful. Why can't we sell this house? Houses were selling all over the place. Mm -hmm. We got a bunch of contracts. They would always fall through. And... Uh, the house was on the market for five years. Mm. You know, we had moved. And I just couldn't understand, why am I paying two mortgages? What is this going on? Um, but then somebody told me about 1031 exchanges, where if you uh, sell a house and you can invest all the profit into a new property, you don't have to pay the capital gains. and But it all has to be done within a 45-day period. So... How was that going to do me any good when it had been in the house on the market for five years? Hmm. Well, within that 45-day period, a friend of mine who's in real estate found a perfect property for me to hmm. invest in, and all within the 45-day period. And the house sold hmm. uh, for twice as much as we'd been asking hmm. for wow. it before. So, and the Lord was just saying, see, you doubt me, but I hmm. got your back. You just hmm. got to learn how to trust me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure that that has happened in the operating room, or um, I don't know what I don't know what you call it when you're preparing, um, because mm -hmm. uh, my assumption is there is there is a lot more in the prep than there is in the actual time in the operating room. But can you can you recall a time when you, you call your book "Gifted Hands" when mm -hmm. you felt like God really did take control of you? Well, I remember uh, once in South Africa. Uh, the case of the Banda twins, they were joined at the top of the head facing opposite directions. And uh, we reached a point in the operation where it looked like red spaghetti and blue spaghetti. Just how are you going to disentangle it and send one to one twin and one to the other? It mm -hmm. looked impossible. And so we stopped the operation. And uh, we went to a conference and I said, maybe what we can do is, uh, you know, close things up, leave them, you know, connected with all these vessels and come back in a few months and maybe there'll be some rearrangements of the vessels that will allow us to get through all of this. And and uh, the doctors from South Africa and Zambia, which is where the twins came from, said, that's a great idea. And I know it would work at Johns Hopkins. Mm -hmm. But we don't have the ability to keep partially separated twins alive. They'll mm -hmm. die. Mm -hmm. 
And then I really felt the weight of the world on my shoulders, and I went back in there, and I said, Lord, it's up to you. I'm, you know, we're, we're beyond <laughs> what we can do here. And over the next several hours, which I do not remember, hmm. we're able to disentangle all those things. And, uh, you know, those two twins are the first complexly joined twins to ever uh, be separated and be neurologically normal. Hmm. But the other neurosurgeons who were involved in the case said, we couldn't believe what you were doing. We were watching you. We couldn't believe it. And I don't even remember. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and I, hmm. I know that was a case where God just kind of took over. Yeah. Tell me about the human brain. I, I, you did, I forget what it was, a hemispherectomy, am mm -hmm. I getting that correct? Where yeah. you actually removed almost half, half of the a, brain. And, and, uh, one of the, I understand one of the girls that you did this with graduated from college and is doing, doing great. Several of them have. The, the, the human brain is, is just an amazing organ. And, and from your, um, from your experience, tell, tell me about the human brain, something that we don't understand. Well, it has billions and billions of neurons, hundreds of billions of interconnections. It can process more than two million bits of information in one second. Hmm. You can't overload it. You've heard people say, don't learn this, you'll overload your brain. You can't do it. <laughs> if you learn one new fact every second, it would take you more than three million years to begin to challenge the capacity of your brain. Okay. So, uh, you know, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. And interestingly, if you look at an animal's brain versus a human brain, and surface topography, there's many similarities, but big difference. Animals have a very big, well-developed midbrain. Hmm. The midbrain is primarily involved with reacting. That's why animals react so quickly hmm. compared to us. But when you look, the human brain has these big frontal lobes, frontal cortex, which is involved with rational thought processing, receiving information, processing it, and then projecting it so that we can plan, we can strategize, we can analyze, which is why even though, you know, as far as physical abilities where we would be at the bottom of the food chain everything would eat us but mm -hmm. but we have these big brains mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and we can figure things out yeah and therefore man is in control um but you know there are some people today interestingly enough who i want people to act like animals they mm. they want you to look at somebody and react on the basis of their skin color mm -hmm. as opposed to analyzing what is their character. And that's what Dr. King meant when he said he dreamed of a time when people would be judged not on the basis of the color of their skin, but the content of their character. Hmm. I want to talk about your mom again mm -hmm. for just a minute. You mentioned um, what she did. She, um, What a legacy. You and I, I was going to ask you what happened to your brother. I, I watched the movie. Yeah. And I, I wondered what happened to your brother. He became, he was a rocket scientist? A rocket scientist. No kidding. <laughs> now, is he still alive? Yes. And, yes. and uh, where, what is he doing now? Uh, he retired uh, from Parker Aviation <laughs> about two years that's, ago. That's just mind-blowing. <laughs> so a single mom in Detroit mm. um, with a third grade mm. education yeah. raises a 
brain scientist and a rocket scientist, or a brain surgeon and a rocket scientist. Well, well, my mother was probably the wisest person I've ever mm. met. You know, you don't have to have a lot of formal education. In mm. fact, there are a lot of PhDs that are total fools. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, uh, you know, wisdom, mm-hmm. I think, comes from God. Yeah. And uh, she was able to analyze things. Uh, we didn't even know. Uh, for a very long time that she couldn't read hmm. because she was she cleverly hid the fact hmm. that she couldn't read hmm. did you um, model any of the things you learned from her raising your kids oh absolutely and, uh, not only that but uh, you know she lived with us hmm. uh, from 1991 and so your kids were young the kids and, were young okay and so they had her influence, oh, too, awesome. which was absolutely fantastic. You know, so many families today miss that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, having that intergenerational wisdom can make a huge difference. Mm-hmm. I think it made a big difference for my three sons as they were growing up. Yeah. And also, I was very busy. I was traveling a lot. Uh, a lot of times, my wife would come with me, and it was wonderful to know that they were being taken care of mm-hmm. by my mother. Uh, we just moved in with my dad. My mom passed away about a year and a half ago, and I have a 13-year-old daughter. And uh, about two months ago, we moved in with my father. Mm. And um, I can already see that. Yeah. I can already see that. It's it's a it's a good thing. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I want to ask you about um, something that, that you're doing now. And uh, it there are uh, it's help me with the name American American Cornerstone, Cornerstone Institute Institute and and basically uh, when uh, I was ready to retire for a second time mm-hmm. <laughs> last November, but uh, I I realized that maybe it would not be a good time to retire because there was so much turmoil and strife going on. Uh, so a bunch of people came with me from HUD, some of the real superstars, uh, worked for no salary, hmm. putting together this think tank, do tank, which emphasizes the cornerstone principles that allowed our nation to go from a bunch of ragtag militiamen to the pinnacle of the world in record time. Mm-hmm. And they were cornerstones like our faith, which teaches us how to relate to our fellow man. It says, love your neighbor. Not hate your neighbor, not cancel your neighbor, but love your neighbor. Uh, the whole cornerstone of liberty, which is one of the reasons that so many people came to our country, they wanted freedom uh, to, to live their lives without having the heavy foot of government on their neck all the time, telling them what they could do, when they could do it, where they could go, how they, you know, all these things. And that's why America was such a beacon of freedom for everybody. And, uh, you know, we want to alert people to the fact that you cannot have freedom if you're not vigilant and if you don't work to maintain it. And if if you turn your back and you just put your head down and say whatever happens, happens, you will not be free for very long. And uh, then the whole concept of, of community and the ability to work together, you know, our society succeeded because there were a lot of people with different talents who worked together and were able to build big thriving communities all across the country Mm -hmm. Uh, and then the concept of life from the womb to the tomb 
so important that we do everything to preserve it, enhance life. Mm-hmm. And um, as we've grown further away from our respect for life, we've grown more callous in the way that we treat each other. And then we've recently launched the Little Patriots, which uh, is an interactive uh, internet-based program, K through five education, teaching kids the real history of our nation, warts and all, mm-hmm. everything, uh, but in a very pleasant way. We just come up with a children's book called Why America Matters, and just emphasizing those cornerstone principles uh, to the children so that people come away understanding and loving our nation uh, rather than so much of the hatred that Mm -hmm. we see that's going on, which is quite inappropriate, quite frankly, uh, if you know the real history. Some people think we've gone too far to, to get back that the, the, we, we argue or are so divided about everything mm-hmm. today. You don't feel that way. Well, I, I think uh, we need to fight the purveyors of, of hatred and division because, you know, the United States of America has a special place in the world. Before we became the world power, uh, you know, the world was full of despotic leaders who trampled on the rights of others. Uh, that has calmed down considerably with the United States being at the pinnacle position. And that's why it's important that we maintain our position in the world. Um, So I'm optimistic there, but I do recognize that the biggest threat to the country is division. And Jesus said, a house divided against itself cannot stand and I think it's very important that we help people to recognize that we, the American people, are not each other's enemies. Yeah. You can you can have a disagreement about something, but it doesn't have to make you into enemies. Yeah. 